Galatians 4.11. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, if it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have been put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, you did not know, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Word of our Lord. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly. We're just going to go in the nursery. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up our very life for our sins, that he might snatch us out of the grasp of the present evil age, thus acting in accordance with the attention of God our Father. Amen. This is where Paul starts his letter to the Galatians, and I think it, it captures a lot of this, um, and it's a theme that I think I've, I've fallen off on, but it's, it's 
one that I think when you read closely to Galatians is, is, is that what God has done in Jesus Christ is in some way invaded the cosmos and begun a new creation, a new world, set things in a different frame, in a different world, in a different way of being. And so when we think about the Shelley and David um, both preached the last two weeks and and one of the things they asked me, what should I preach on? I was like, one of the things I do is I get to walk through uh, Galatians with a, a microscope or a magnifying glass and go scene by scene and sort of look at it. And as we get towards the end, I want to give a bigger picture. But I said, for you guys, if, what if you read Galatians and looked at the fullness of what Paul is saying in Galatians? So, you know, this, this letter is only uh, six chapters, to read through it, you could do in one sitting relatively easy. And then to ask, what is it you come away with then? And if you read in a way that breaks familiarity with the text, which is hard for us, we, we oh yeah, this is a, we're adopted, um, oh yeah, we're, we're saved, um, you know, these type of, the law, no good, <laughs> which is te- easy, very easy for people who have no relationship to the law to get to that point and miss the point completely, which is, what has the law been doing? Um, but that we, we have a chance to also look at the wholeness of the letter. And as we get towards the end, I want to do that. But thank you for David and Shelley for filling in the last two weeks. Um, I'm a little rusty. I've been taking two weeks off in forever. So this is when the rust kicks in for me. So I've got to knock it off. Um, but today we have two. And I, what I did, because I missed that one Sunday, was sort of combine sort of two passages we have. And there are two... Uh, complementary, but I think somewhat complex passages. The one, which is uh, 4 through 11, which is one that's more classically, or even the end of 3, one we know pretty well as Christians. This idea that we're adopted, that we're being brought, that we're heirs to the promise that God has made the whole time in Abraham. That one we kind of know well. But the, the one before that about, like, what is the purpose of the law? As we've been talking about, one of the things that Paul is dealing with in light of the Galatians is people have come, interlopers, super apostles, as he calls them in other places, uh, teachers, have come to Galatia and begun to teach a different gospel than the one that Paul taught them. And they would probably not view it that way, but if you're the one who wrote the letter that survived 2,000 years, you get to define the terms. The joke. Um, but what he, he sees them doing is adding something to what they've heard about Jesus Christ. That the Spirit has come and been alive amongst them from when Paul was there. And now teachers have come and said, well, you have part of the picture, but let us come and give you the wholeness of the picture. And in some sense, the wholeness of the picture that they're holding out with them is, is sort of Judaizing them, bringing them into Israel. Whereas Paul views what God has done as Jesus and Christ is the expansion of Israel. We're not bringing people into Israel anymore. God has fulfilled his promises to Israel, and that's why Gentiles are joining the church. And so this is the challenge that Paul has here as he's defined in the early part of three, as I did two weeks ago, um, three weeks ago, geez, um, uh, about Abraham and how it was credited to him as righteousness. What Paul wants to talk about, he actually uses the 430 years from when Abraham was, was received by faith, the promise, to the time when the law came to Moses at Sinai. He wants to magnify that distance to say there's a promise that has come to us, and there is the law that has come to us. 
And one of the questions that, that Galatians historically has been pushed into, but I think it's a good one, is what will free us, justify us, rectify us, restore us, reconcile us? And I've used this in the phrase of the biblical imagination. We are people alienated from God, so what will do this? But what I think partially becomes clear that we'll talk about towards the end of today's sermon is we have our religious life <laughs> where we have an answer to this question. But somehow in the modern world, my political life has a different answer to this question. Or my personal efficiency life has a different answer to this question. Or how will I make a good family has a different answer to this question. Uh, this is a Nobody here is in, in the dating, well, one, uh, the dating phase of life. How will I meet someone who will fulfill me? This is, and so we have these ways of answering these questions and, and what will free me, what will justify me, what will make me whole again? And because we live in the late modern world, we're able to say, I have a religious answer to that question, but I'm not sure what my other answers are. Whereas for Paul, he would say, you have a answer to this question, and it works in each of those scenarios. You have one answer because of what has God has done in Jesus Christ is this invasion that is setting a new world into sorts. We'll get to that in, in 4 through 11, but this is a question. Uh, you could change this question to... Um, and I meant to write this up there, but you could think about this if you're somebody who thinks over the course of the sermon and then checks back in at the end wondering how the hell I'm going to wrap this up. Um, uh, you could think about what is it that enslaves us? What is it that keeps our wills in bondage? Because I think when we think about the late modern world, there's a whole host of things that we willingly bring ourselves in bondage to. We think it's good news. And Paul's message for us is that there's radically other good news than that. Uh, this, is, this is Paul's uh, Evangelion. Uh, 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 gospel is the way we translate it. What we get evangelical from is what God has done in Jesus Christ is what we've said. And we're going to see how that shows up in today's passage. Um, uh, his other thing, and this is uh, one of the most important things, is now that faith has come, pistis, Paul's, that faith has come or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or the faith of Christ has come, everything must change. Everything is different now that faith has come. J. Lewis Martin, one of the commentators I'm reading as I've been going through Galatians, my own personal study, says one of the major questions that Galatian asks is what universe are you a part of? And Martin's answer, which he thinks is Paul's answer, is we're part of a universe that has been set right in a different way by the invasion of the cosmos through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the universe we're a part of. His second question is, what time is it? Which I love because it's, it's, it's the time of faith. It is the time in which we are being grafted into this new creation. And when you think about that, that's uh, Alistair McIntyre's great phrase, that before I can ask what I should do, I should ask what story I'm a part of. What story am I trying to live out? And what Paul is doing in Galatians is setting very clearly the story we are called to live out. And it's a story a little bit less so about us and more so about what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
today that sells less than it probably did in the ancient world. We like talking about ourselves a little bit more than we talk about what God has done. Um, but this, for Paul, is what God is doing. So the passage begins with Paul taking an example from everyday life. Um, just as one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, uh, just as no one can set aside a, a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is the case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. The scripture does not say seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Jesus Christ. First off, the, one of the things that they would say about Paul is Paul reads scripture very creatively. Um, and I think that's one of the things we miss in the modern world is Paul writes scripture. But to say he reads it very creatively is, is not a compliment in our modern world as much as say, you know, I like that pastor, but he reads scripture very creatively, which is to say, I really don't like that pastor. Um, is, uh, uh, for, the, for, the, for these super apostles, for these teachers, Paul is reading Scripture very creatively. What he's saying is, is that when you look back to what Abraham and this promise was, he doesn't even say to many seeds, many people, but to one seed, and to that seed is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this promise. And what he means to be saying, and what he is saying here, this is where this 430-year gap comes in, is that this promise, the promise is deeper than the law. God's promise to us to be God who fulfills this, fulfills his promise to Abraham to have a people, to have um, a place, to, to be this God of this covenant, is deeper than the law. Now, at this time, there, were, there was, and we talked about this a little bit with um, Proverbs 8, uh, that, the, that sort of wisdom, that pre-creation wisdom. There was a time in Jewish history where the Proverbs 8 woman who was there at the beginning is interpreted as the law. Um, as the law that is with God. That, and so they have their own sense in which the law is sort of co-creator. It's, it's something that's exist long before it came into being through the world. Paul thinks otherwise. Paul thinks that the promise, the fidelity of who God is, and, and one of the things that I think is so important for us to capture in our world is the fidelity of who God is, is deeper than the law is deeper than the things that we think we can do to save ourselves, is deeper, deeper than things we think are a gift, but somehow can't free us and bring us back to life? This is next question. But what, what I want to say about the fidelity of who God is, is that God has been faithful to his promises the whole time, is one of the things that takes up part of Galatians, but certainly takes up Romans 9 through 11 as well. That he, Paul is very careful to be guarding that the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the God whom Israel has always worshipped. What happened in Jesus Christ is God's fidelity to his promises, not some new or other or different God enacting in the world. And we, um, you know, I, I had a friend once who said, why do we have to sing that God is good in church? It seems weird. And it's like, well, I mean, if you study the history of world religions, it's not actually a uh, it's not actually obvious that your gods should be good. <laughs> People worshipped tons of gods throughout history that you wouldn't describe as good in any sense of the word, but they were gods, so who were you to debate with that? Um, that the first is, is that you know, it's, it's, not, it's not required that our god be a good god, per se. Um, and so it is, in some sense, worth praising that we have a god who is good. 
But the other thing is, is that, that God is, is infidelity to our world is another, another praise that we have there. That God is not one who changes. God is not one who morphs. God is not one who, who in some sense, moves the goalposts on us. And this is hard for us because we live in a world, I think, where we actually kind of prefer that. We, we don't like the stability. It would be nicer if he changed a little bit. And Paul wants to guard against that temptation to say that God, for us, needs to be the one who is continually enacting his promises to us. There's a problem there, which is if you have a finicky God who changes its mind and is blown about by the wind, how do you ever know you're really with the God? How do you ever know you're involved in the right spot? How do you know that you have found yourself freed by this God, rather fallen into the old age? Paul wants to make clear that God in his promise to us, and promises this key word, this promise is the one who's continually fulfilling his word to his people. Um, The law was introduced 430 years after that, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it it to Abraham through a promise. If, If us inheriting this depended on the law, then somehow the promise has been wiped out, is what Paul is saying. And so as the Galatians, and we, at times, want to move into other realms where we can earn the promises that God have for us. And this is um, classic Reformation. You know, we think we can earn our salvation, but I think even more importantly, like we think uh, today that we can set up schemes in which we can move further with God. Um, We can set up ways in which we transform ourselves further into the realm of God rather than trusting that this is a God who comes to us. The next section is, what was the law? Why was the law given at all? Good follow-up question. I like the way that Paul writes in the question so we know what he's answering. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to the promise was referred to had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So the law was added because of transgressions. What Paul is going to say throughout this section is that in some sense the law has this way of, of pointing out what we've done wrong. Israel has the benefit of knowing where humanity has gone wrong in the world. But Paul says that that doesn't have the benefit through the law of the promise of the new life. It doesn't seem to be able to do more than point out where we've gone astray. Now, I think what better time to talk about Calvin's third loose use of the law than now? It's a joke, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, for, for Calvin, and this is the, 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 the law functions in a couple ways, and I just want to say this because we've, we've walked through Leviticus at this church, which, which would be different. Um, you know, you're walking through the law when you do that, and the question is why. Uh, Calvin helpfully sets up the law in sort of three realms. One is the one we're probably most familiar with, and the one that Paul is alluding to here too, is that we, it points out the ways in which we fail. It shows God's goodness and what a full and good and true perfect human life looks like, and then it shows the ways in which we go astray of that, the way in which we fall off that cliff. 
The second use of the law, and, and so um, this is where gospel comes in the classic sort of uh, uh, Lutheran distinction. There is law, which wounds us, and there is gospel, which heals us. Uh, and, and Luther doesn't think it's as easy to define as we do. He says, you know, uh, to be the person who can read scripture to say what is law and what, what is gospel is to be a well-trained surgeon using a scalpel. He thinks that it's very hard for us to always know what's law and what's gospel. Calvin's second use of the law is civil. Um, the, the law has this benefit, take the Ten Commandments and other, thou shall not steal, thou shall not murder, of setting up a, a society that has some benefits of like, this is the um, guardrails of how we're going to live. Murder is wrong, uh, stealing is wrong. Um, uh, it gives us broad-based pictures to set up a civil world, is what Calvin's um, point is here. And, and, and his point in that, th- this one is kind of... Um, similar to what Paul is saying here too, you know where you've done wrong, is it's just to say that we can limit uh, violence and destruction perhaps by this. This is not a healing that Calvin says from this. But his third use of the law is that it um, teaches us. It can, it can in some sense be a balm for us to know how to live holy lives. That it instructs us. Paul here in Galatians is not as crazy on that one, although I think you can, you can um, get the third use of the law into Galatians. But certainly when Paul is talking in Romans, he, he has this third use of the law perhaps in mind, that the law has some benefit on the other side of hearing the gospel, which is that after we've heard how we have been freed through Jesus Christ, we now can go back to that holy life and begin to sort of with the Spirit uh, live in that place and learn from that law. And this is, this is what he means in sort of the broader picture of the law. And part of the challenge with this, just before I, I continue on to Paul, uh, is Jesus's, you know, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, canon, uh, the New Testament teaches us multiple things about this law, um, and it's to hold them all together uh, is, I think, a little bit more difficult than we would imagine sometimes. Um, uh, but th- it, I think it does depend on the audience. Here, Paul's audience, let's go back to Galatians now. Sorry for the interlude with Calvin's third use of the law, but now you know. Knowing is half the battle. Um, is, uh, is that he's talking to people who are trying to lay over the law to make people Jews again. To, in some sense, and this is what Paul is deeply worried about when he gets to this, to abolish what God has done in Jesus Christ is what happens there. It's to make the thing all over again, to retreat back into past territory. And as I've said several times is that for Paul, the important thing is that God does not have many families but one family. He is not setting up different, there's that half-Jewish, half-Christian, mutt family, but God is bringing all people into the one family of God, which is the seed of Abraham. But that is not, in, in Paul, entirely just us, but is Jesus Christ whom we find our home in. So this, this logic here and this argument that Paul is making as he continues is, is that if the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, it implies more than, but God is one. Uh, again, protecting that fidelity of who God is. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Another good question. Absolutely not. For law have been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture was locked everything under the control of sin. So it was for promise being through faith in Jesus Christ, or same thing as we talked about in 2, through the faithfulness of Christ might be given to those who believe. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? 
is the question that you could ask at this point. But what he says is that absolutely not, but it doesn't seem to be able to bring us back to life. We find ourselves still locked in that struggle with sin and not being able to move from death to life. That righteousness is unable to come or be fulfilled through the keeping of the law. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. The end of Deuteronomy sets up this clear sort of picture that we're going to end up in slavery ruled by foreign gods. This is part of why he says, why would you want to join the curse sort of in earlier Galatians? Why would you want to go into that? And then there's other portions of pretty much most of the Old Testament that continually suggest that people are failing to live this, and that's why they end up in exile and in trouble and ruled by other people. And so Paul has basically all of the Old Testament as his evidence to say, righteousness has not come through this. We continually find ourselves locked and led astray. But what has come is through the faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or through the faithfulness of Jesus that might be given to those who believe. Scripture has locked everything under sin is to say that, that the law has pointed out in the ways in which we have been locked into this battle with sin. But the promise now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ is where we want to be. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith has come. Uh, the, the faith that, sorry, before the coming of the faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that had come to be would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul has been setting up the law um, in in several ways so far, I was looking if he continues it, but I think that's the last instances, is that it is this mid-keeper. First, in some sense, the law seems to make us slaves is one of the things Paul alludes to. The other one is that he considers the law a a pedagogue, which is where we get the term pedagogy, uh, teachers in the room, hooray. Um, What's your pedagogy? Uh, Mine is uh, listen to me. Um, uh, that's, That's Ray's. I asked him before. He said, Uh, Mine is, do the assignment and turn it in on time. Um, Deep. Um, He he considers the law a bit of a a pedagogy. It's it's something that has locked us up to. It's a tutor. And and, sorry, what the pedagogy is is often translated as tutor, but it's more like the person who took you to school and from school and made sure you didn't act up. Um, It's a little bit more... uh, um, punishment-oriented than we read it in the English in our translation. And in the ancient Near East, this person was normally not the child's friend, but the child sort of like prod along the way. Like, you weren't in school today, um, or, or get there or do this. Um, uh, this was sort of in that, those households, this thing. And so what the law um, seems to be doing is sort of being an instructor in that way. It's, it's a pedagogue until Christ comes. It's something that that keeps us from straying too far from the path until Christ appears. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Again, this is one of the things I tried to talk to at the beginning of the sermon, and going back to those questions I wanted us to ask ourselves, is um, we like being the active agent in things. And if we're not... Oftentimes, a despair and hopelessness sets in. And you could see why 
I think for some of us, how did the Galatians decide that this, perhaps even for some of the adult men getting circumcised, was better than what God had already offered them through Paul? How did they want to go to that place? And I think when we look at ourselves, how is it we always want to take on things because we think it's good for us rather than trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ? And again, we are good at dividing the world. That's not my religious life. It's all one life. There is no, uh, Eugene Peterson, when he wrote his spiritual theology, uh, he said it could have just have been life theology. He didn't think that there was spiritual theology and other theology. He said that this is just life. Um, uh, you, you don't divide like that. And so while we have less obvious gods um, that we can go and offer sacrifices to or re-entrench ourselves in the law in the Old Testament. We do not lack for methods of self-improvement, of placing ourselves back at the center, of looking for uh, political gods or, or mechanisms to save us or personal wealth and success to do that. It all runs deep in our veins, and so we would prefer that than rather saying that God has done something in Jesus Christ. So then Paul moves into this beautiful section that's close to, uh, many people think, this sort of baptism liturgy. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for you are all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. The, I love that phrase, clothe yourself with Christ. You are people through your baptism who wear Christ. You are clothed in Christ. If I actually thought about that as I lived my life, would be lived much differently most of the time. When you get up in the morning and you put your clothes on, if you were to, to make a silent prayer of, I am one who is clothed in Christ through my baptism. In the early church, this is, we don't do baptisms like this anymore, but they had a way of bringing you down to the waters and stripping you away naked and bringing you out to the other side and clothing you in white robes. They wanted to own this image of that you've been clothed in something else. The monastic life, there are monastic orders that do this in a different way, whereas you have your habit, that which you wear, and in your closet every day next to your habit when you get up in the morning is the clothes you wear when you came into the monastery. As if to say, today, would you like to clothe yourself in the vow you undertook to this community? Or today, would you like to go back to life as usual? And if I were a Benedictine at 3 a.m. in the morning, the first day I would say, give me my clothes back. I'm out. Um, but, but we have this way in which God have closed us through baptisms with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are those who have been grafted into Israel and are heirs to the promise he gave to Abraham the whole time. The, the there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male for female, um, is, uh, is this way of saying, and it's, uh, you know, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, which I'm saying nobody knows who she is, she wrote a book on sort of the radicalization of sort of gender in the New Testament, and she wanted to sort of um, 
take this as a feminist statement to sort of reprogram all gender relations and stuff like that, which certainly if you just took this one statement, you might be able to do that, except for that Paul has various other statements about what does it mean to live as women in the church? What does it lead to mean as men, men in the church? What does it mean to live as slaves in the church? I think one of the more challenging parts of the New Testament um, for 21st century believers is, is Paul certainly doesn't seem to support slavery, but in his social imagination of the world he lived in, it's not quite clear that he can envision us taking it away either. Um, so to say that first off, these are, um, uh, how far do I wanna go with this? These are neutral distinctions, I think, for Paul's imagination in the first place. These are not good or bad things. Now we would say slavery is certainly a bad thing. In Paul's world, that's not the case. And, and slavery is different than what we imagine in the 1800s, Just just for that, if you want to imagine it. So, so Paul is trying to say that um, the antagonisms that have come through seeing the world in this way have disappeared because we're now one in Jesus Christ. We still have, um, and, and this is what's going to take up the latter half of Galatians or the last um, uh, chapter and a half, I think, um, is we have a way in which we are to uh, live our life responsibly to live our lives as new creation. We have this new pattern of life that we are taking on. And there are ways in which we take that on as men, as women, or as Jew or Gentile, or as slave or free, again, in Paul's imagination at this time. Um, that it doesn't abolish those differences in our social roles in the world. But in the church, we are no longer able to use those things as antagonisms against one another because we are all being made one in Christ Jesus. If Paul doesn't have a Jewish family, and a, if God doesn't have a Jewish family and a Gentile family, God also doesn't have a male family and a female family, or a free or a slave family, or in our culture, a black or a white family. God is making one family and dissolving those distinctions. And so you get things like um, uh, Emeritus Farms. Is, is that how you say it, Brandon Carla? The, the Cotton Batch, Clarence Jordan down there, um, who took this passage and decided to live an interracial community down in Georgia to sort of embody what the reconciliation that God had accomplished in Jesus Christ. People who came there didn't cease to be black, but they found that they were one in Jesus Christ together. They didn't cease to be male or female but they made one family of the work that God was doing in the world. So this brings us to 4, 1 through 11, which really should have been its own sermon. Uh, the first is that this one uh, has this beautiful way of sort of relating the Trinity to us. What I'm saying is it is no longer as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. And I think uh, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole state, is an interesting way of looking at the law just in that sentence. Um, the heir is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Is that the, the Jews, in some sense, if you wanted to read Galatians positively towards this, which he, Paul is not always, is are those who own the whole estate already. But because they are not of age, the time has not come where God has sent his son into the world, they are unable to live in that way. They become those under guardians and trustees until the time set by the father, or in this image, his father. 
um, that, that Jews are those who are in some sense underage and no, not able to take advantage of the whole estate. That promise, again, is there, but they're not um, freed to that until Christ comes. So also when we, and Paul in the pronouns here, if you wanted to trace them, not pronouns, we as uh, pronoun, okay. The modern world has messed up what a pronoun is to me. Uh, yes, <laughs> I miss, uh, we, we and you are things that he's going to go back and forth here, and scholars have tried to figure it out. But um, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. This is that, again, that cosmic frame. If you slow down and read Galatians, we were under uh, uh, slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In, in the ancient Near East, this could mean anything from air, earth, uh, water, and fire, I think what they thought all the world was made of, to social roles and social constrictions, to even to what Paul seems to be alluding here, that the law almost is this elemental spiritual force that is unable to free us. There's all these ways in which we make ourselves slave to something. But when the time had come, and this is um, not just a chronological time, uh, and I don't mean that in the Kairos, Kronos, Greek sense, but when the time had come is, is this emphasis that something new has happened. Something has been created into the world. Something, uh, as, as it was a promise, isn't just waiting, um, isn't just a covenantal history. It's not just like, oh, and then this chapter of what we entered. Paul is not thinking, because it, part of the problem is if it's just another chapter we entered, for Paul comes the problem of then why couldn't God then do another chapter of what we're entering? For Paul, this is, this is the definitive, what God is doing here when the time had fully come was the fullness of what God had intended all along. God sent his son born of a woman under the law. Born of a woman uh, is the suggestion that we, um, that Christ is born as all humanity is born to sort of live in this estate. And born under the law is that second thing to sort of say that he is born as one who is in this enslavement to that thing which we thought was good. Shelley helped me fix this before the service. By putting the chains on himself, he takes uh, I thought I fixed it. He takes them off the other. Um, by Christ taking the law on himself, by placing that on himself, by taking on the human situation as a whole, he takes them off of us. And so he is one who comes and does this and frees us. Perhaps we'll hit on this one a little bit more next time. I want to end um, with this last part of this passage. Um, Formerly, when we did not know God, you were slaves to those who are by nature not gods. But, how, but now that you know God, or rather known by God, how is it you are turning your back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear that somehow I may have wasted my efforts on you. Um... I've, I've had the privilege of knowing some well-known Christians, and uh, I played football with a guy who had a decent NFL career. I know those people. They don't know me. 
what Paul is doing throughout Galatians is keeping the primacy of faith on God's activity in the world. This is why that faithfulness of Jesus Christ, I think, is important. Or that we, uh, there was a pamphlet that we used to give out in college that said, would you like to know God? Uh, would, you, would you like to know God personally? And I was thinking as I was, of this passage today, or this week, as how much more would it be nice to be known by God? We live in a world where we know lots of people. I know so-and-so, but they would never recognize me. I've known that person. But what Paul is holding out for us, what he wants us to find ourselves in, is not in this effort to be noticed by God, not in this effort to, to, to make ourselves known to God, not in this way of saying, I've done something, so now I know God, which is perhaps what the teachers were saying. Paul is saying, his Evangelion in, in the biggest picture, is God has sent his son into the world to, in some sense, invade the world. And he is the one who's inspired faith in us in which we are now being known by God. And so that we cry out through that spirit in which he has sent, Abba, Father, bringing that, that Trinitarian image full circle. God sends his son the Spirit comes and lives in us, and we cry out, Abba, Father. We are not those who are trying to be known by God, but we are rather those who are known by God. And how much more should this keep us from turning back to other mechanisms of freeing ourselves, of bringing us new life, of trying to raise ourselves from the dead, but trusting and the faithfulness of the one who has come from God, born of a woman, born under the law, who sets us free from those enslaved and miserable forces and brings us into communion, into the God who knows us. Let us pray. God, we come to you as ones who are known by you. Ones who are clothed and have put on your son, Jesus Christ. Ones whom the Spirit is active within us and calls us to cry out to you as our Father. We are heirs of the promise in which you have set into motion in Abraham. Your wisdom and giftedness you gave humanity a law for a time to keep us on the guardrails of life. But as with all things human effort, it was not able to raise the dead. It could not bring life. And so we today are called to put on the faithfulness of the one who lived faithfully before you, to clothe ourselves in that. We, doing that, will know you, God. But more so wrapped up in the gospel is that you know us. Be near to us now as we worship, as we receive communion, as we confess um, and are reminded of the goodness of what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ.
name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.